The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Hello, 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 hello. We're going to get started. Um, we are going to be talking about rightly dividing the word we're going to talk about principles in studying Scripture and teaching Scripture um, because this is really important. And so we're going to jump right into it. Um, and the text comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we have, I've got four different translations right here for us. I'm going to read each of them because they each have uh, highlight different nuances. Um, the English Standard Version says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. New American Standard says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The King James says, study to show, that's S-H-E-W, thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the CSB, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Yeah, so the reason why we're doing this is because uh, this is Paul writing to a pastor who is training other pastors, right? And that, uh, and that for us, we need to understand that we are primarily teachers and we are primarily teaching the Bible. And so if we are gonna spend time learning how to do anything. Even what, uh, what Mark was talking about this morning, you know, when he was talking about professionals and how we have a standard, right? The, the, uh, what God, the calling that God has placed on our lives is one of teaching and is one of discipling. And we have been given a, we've been given God's word, his revealed word to us that we are supposed to take, we're supposed to be the ones who take that and give it to our people, right? And so of all things, we need to hold up God's word and we need to make sure that we are properly interpreting God's word. And if we are handling it properly, then we will not be ashamed before God. Well, that's, I mean, what a heavy thing because none of us, none of us want to be ashamed of our work. Bef- and we definitely don't want to be ashamed of our work before the Lord. Man, yeah, when uh, at the end of Mark's session this morning, we was talking about we want God to say, well done. And so for us, what we're doing primarily when we are investing in these students is we are making the word of God known to them, right? Because on our own, we do not have the words of life, but we've been given those. All right, so as we continue, all right, let me talk about some bad examples I know, sometimes this is actually really helpful and I'm actually gonna use some illustrations and if I step on your toes, I'm gonna go ahead and apologize, but it's not authentic, right? I, <laughs> I thought, was it, that remember again what Mark said, I thought it was really good that part of a lot of growing up is being inauthentic, it's called being thoughtful. So if I step on your toes, man, I'm really sorry. I apologize from the heart, all right. Uh, Some bad examples, the pre-Reformation church, the springboard approach, and the decoder ring method. All right, this, so uh, when I talk about the the pre-Reformation church, you guys know that, um, that 
before the Protestant Reformation, one of the greatest things that came out of the Protestant Reformation was the Bible in vernacular languages, in the languages that people spoke. A little bit of church history, the, um, the Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew, and then sometime between three and 400 BC, it was all translated into, uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and then we had the New Testament written in Greek, so we had the whole Bible in Greek. And then the reason why they did that is because especially the Old Testament got translated into Greek because Hebrew, the Hebrew people were not speaking Hebrew anymore. They started speaking Greek. So what did they do? They translated the Bible into the language that people could understand, made sense. Well, when the New Testament was written, the New Testament was written in the language of the common people. It wasn't written in a classical Greek. It was written in what's called Koine Greek, which just means common, normal. This is what everybody spoke. But then what happened is that somewhere, um, somewhere in the 300s, there was, it got translated into Latin, and then it got frozen in Latin. Now, what's really interesting was tra- the, the translation that was held up as, most, uh, as the most authoritative was called the Latin Vulgate, all right? And that interesting Vulgate, which is the same thing from vulgar, which means just common, Right? Because even when it was translated into Latin, it was translated into the common language that people spoke because everyone realized, oh, we want people to understand the Bible. And then what happened is that the, the, the Latin Vulgate version became basically an idol. And the Catholic Church used it to wield power over people. In fact, they made it illegal to translate from Latin into any other language, which was crappy because nobody spoke Latin. And so what happened uh, in, in the Reformation is that you had people coming along and translating the Bible into the vernacular languages, which was awesome. Because imagine if you were before that time, if you were living in, you know, like the area that became Germany, people were speaking German, people, the, people were speaking um, and, and so like Martin Luther, who uh, Martin Luther was a ger- native German speaker, and he translated the Bible into German, which was awesome. One of the best things that happened from the Reformation. But if you were a German speaker and, and you went to a church, you would hear someone read the Bible to you faithfully, but they would read it in Latin. All right, now that's basically if I started reading the Bible to you in Latin, would that be helpful? No, of course not. Right, but then what would happen? You would have the priest or bishop or cardinal or whatever, they would say, thus says the Lord. And so what happened is there was a shifting of authority. The authority went from the reveal, Christ revealed in his word to a person. And so all of the people were putting their faith and their hope and their trust in a person other than Jesus. And that's dangerous. Now, I know that none of us None of us are doing that. None of us are preaching the Bible in Latin. But let's be very careful, which we shouldn't. That would be ridiculous. Why would we? What a dumb example, Zach. Anyway, yeah, but what we need to do is we need to make sure that that we are pointing to God's word and not ourselves. That's a big deal. There is a danger there is a danger for you to say, I am the mouthpiece of God and that every, every word that anyone hears from God is from me when we've been given his word, all right? Let's look next, the springboard or the bait and switch method. This is an easy temptation because sometimes you have something that you want to say. And so what do you do? You pick a verse of the Bible that seems to say that same thing. You read that verse and then you take your Bible, put it, uh, close it up, put it aside and say, now I'm preaching. 
Oh man, that's dangerous. This is, this is how I grew up. I grew up in a really strict, independent, fundamental Baptist church. Woo-hoo. And um, I'm not jaded. I was for a long time. Now I just laugh at it. Um, and uh, and my, my pastor, was. I think he was faithfully serving the Lord. He loved the Lord, and he studied the Bible, but he was a terrible preacher because what he would do is every sermon, every sermon I ever remember growing up, he would preach on one verse. And it wasn't the verse right after the the verse that he'd preached on the week before. It was just one verse, and he'd take some kind of idea from that verse, and then he would make his own sermon out of it. Now what's crazy is there were a lot of, and and this is what's amazing, is that God used him to bring people to faith in Jesus. God used him in my life, right? Because he was preaching good biblical truths, but the problem was they didn't come from that part of the Bible, right? So short-term, this is a short-term game, long-term loss, right? Because he was saying good things, good biblical things, awesome, but I wasn't being trained on how to treat the Bible properly. You see, I was trained to, well, you just take one verse and then see where it goes. That's exactly what happened. Uh, John Piper has a really cool quote here. This is from Together for the Gospel in 06. He's talking about this type of preaching. He says, Pastor, where are you getting your ideas? I'm looking up, I'm looking down, but I don't see it. I like your ideas, I just don't see where you're getting them from. Yeah, because you're not teaching the Bible you're teaching good biblical truths, but you're not teaching people where that came from. You're not teaching them how they can learn from God on their own. The next is the, the decoder ring or a little modern day Gnosticism. And here's what, I want to, I want to be really careful. Um, there's a lot of times where we, we try to use like the original languages in our preaching and teaching, okay? But that's, we need to be really careful that we don't do so in such a way that is undermining the English translations that we have. That's a big deal, right? You know, uh, w- if we're saying stuff like, well, you know, in the original language, this actually means, right. Okay, be- wh- what, are, what can happen here? Now, I'm gonna talk about, in just a second, I'm gonna come back to original languages because I do see lots of value in studying the original languages. But we don't wanna undermine people's confidence in the, in the English translations that we have, and we don't want to convey to people that they're never gonna know what the Bible really means unless they learn Greek and Hebrew. We don't wanna do that, right? Because most of them are not gonna learn Greek and Hebrew. Just not gonna happen, right? And we don't wanna make it seem like God is trying to trick us, right? Oh, we've got this translation of the Bible, but if you, there's this deeper meaning. Well, sometimes there is, sometimes there's not. Sometimes when you translate from one language to another, if it's a faithful translation, you are accurately conveying that information. And you know what we need to do? man. Committed to memory, study, learn, read, memorize, all right? Um, so what do we need to do? We wanna, be, we wanna sit here and we wanna say, what is the clear reading of the passage, right? Like we wanna talk about the historical context, right? What's happening in the lives of the authors with that they're writing this? What's happening in the lives of the readers? Where are they? Who is it written to? You look in the, uh, the Old Testament is pro- predominantly written to these Jewish people, right? So that we, that, that we need to make sure we're understanding the context. Oh, 
when was this written? Who was in power? Who are these people? If it's in the New Testament, were these predominantly Jewish Christians? Were these predominantly Greek Christians? Because the context, the historical context really matters. You know, I think especially a lot of times people will make this huge conflict between Paul and James talking about faith and works. Well, you need to know they're writing to different groups of people from different backgrounds right? If you're talking to people who are predominantly Jewish and people who are predominantly Greek who are being influenced by Jewish people to become more Jewish, then it's going to change the way that you're talking. So we need to understand, we need to understand the historical context, we need to understand the literary context, right? That's why it's so important that, I I mean, I think our our church does this, the, the absolute best way to preach and teach the Bible is to just go through books of the Bible, it's so good. One, because it makes, it makes you tethered to the text, right? You're preaching this paragraph, okay, well, next week, and I mean, think about what it is for your people. You say, hey, next week, we're actually gonna be doing that next paragraph or that next chapter. So read ahead, study, and then we're gonna come back together and I'm gonna teach and preach through that. And it makes you, makes you follow the train of thought of the author, Right, I remember this was crazy for me because, again, I grew up in a pretty legalistic background, and, and with the, we only use the King James Version Bible because it obviously is the only inspired version of the Bible um, since 1611, straight from heaven, refined seven times. Anyway, it doesn't matter. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Um, and I was a heretic. Like my junior year of high school, I really got convicted about studying the Bible, so I purchased... I'm ashamed to say it, the new international version, and I loved it. Man, I mean like, and it's crazy because it's the first time that I really, like I learned that you needed to understand stuff in context. And I know that sounds crazy. I was a junior. I'd been reading and studying the Bible for years. I'd been a, pre- I'd been a faithful follower of Jesus, a tender of church. But I mean, I got this. And what's crazy is, I don't know if you guys remember this, or you guys have different backgrounds than I do. The, in the, the King James Version Bible was original, the, the, even the way it was formatted was just verse, 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 verse. And every now and then, the newer ones would have a little paragraph symbol, like, oh, this is a new paragraph, but it wasn't indented like a paragraph. And when I read the NIV, and it was like in paragraph forms, and I was like, whoa, wait a second, because you know, I've been taking English classes, you know, like it would have a, uh, the paragraphs, you would change paragraphs when you change subjects, you know? And it was so fascinating. And God just started speaking to me through his word because I was understanding the actual literary context and that if he says something here, a lot, I mean, especially Paul, you read Paul, he's making arguments the whole time. He's saying here, oh, because of this and because of this and in light of this, and you're like, whoa, it was amazing. So we need, to, we need to be paying attention to that. We need to be paying attention to the grammar. I know that's super nerdy, but that's the way I am. Uh, yeah, I love grammar. If you guys want to get together and diagram sentences, I'm in. Todd, me and you, hot date. Okay. Here's, this is, if you want to make sure that you're preaching in context, here, this is a really good example. If someone knows the text that you're going to be covering, they should, get, they should have a pretty good understanding of where you're going in the sermon, right? Because you're not the one who is supposed to be declaring the meaning of this. It's the text, right? So here, w- make it clear. 
My challenge is make it clear. You are not only preaching and teaching the Bible, but you are teaching people how they are supposed to be handling God's word. Do you see what I'm saying? You, you are teaching, yes, but in your handling of God's word, you are showing people how they should be handling God's word. That, that when you preach, it shouldn't be something like, oh, wow, look at this insight. This is crazy. Look at that person, right? That, that's not our goal. Our goal is not, look at me and how good I am at teaching these things. But what we should do is we should be saying, look how great God's word is. And I'm gonna explain it to you in such a way that when you look at your Bible, you should be going, oh, yeah, that makes sense, I get it. We should be showing people what they can get to at their kitchen table every morning. And this is huge, because for me, I had to do, when I started really studying the Bible after I graduated high school, there was so much deconstructing I had to do because I had been trained a improper way of handling the Bible. And so we need to make sure, because uh, when we're teaching, when we're preaching, we are not just teaching content, but we are showing how to handle God's word. All right, so let's talk about the original languages for just a little bit. Um, there is, I think there is value to studying the original languages. In fact, if some of you are going into seminary, if you're doing like a master of divinity, great, ooh, awesome. Uh, my, my one piece of seminary advice that I tell everybody in seminary is that if you, are, if you are forced to study the original languages, that's actually a good thing, and keep studying them. My biggest regret is that I went through seminary and I got to this point, I wanted to get married, so I cared less about classes. Weird, I know. And, uh, and what I did was I, I, I'd studied Greek and really enjoyed it, and I, I kept just taking additional Greek. I would always take a Greek class. Again, I'm a nerd, it's fine. Um, I did that, and, uh, and then I had to take Hebrew, so I, I was doing that, and then I, I had a chance to take the second semester of Hebrew, and I knew it was gonna be difficult for me, and it was my last semester, and I wanted to get married, so I intentionally took a class where I knew that I wasn't gonna be challenged, and then after seminary, I've continued to, to plug away in Greek and have forgotten Hebrew completely. So if you are going into seminary, if you spend a couple minutes a day, you can keep that up. It is a, it is a depreciable skill. You start losing it immediately. So that's my challenge. Anyway, so a value in the original languages? Yes, absolutely. God, God intentionally chose these languages to reveal himself in. Okay, that means something, right? And, the, and that the languages that the, the scripture were written in are simultaneously, this sounds confusing, simultaneously simpler and more complex than English, right? And what I mean by that is that they're simpler in the sense that they have, especially Greek, Greek is considered an inflected language, there you go, we're just gonna say some nerdy things, but every word you know by the way the word is formed, what role it is playing in the sentence, right? If you don't have to guess, well, what's the subject? What's the direct object, right? You don't have to do that. It shows you, oh, this is, this is, this is a participle. This is a preposition. I mean, you just know what they are. And so it's, in that sense, it's so much simpler but it's also more complex because then you have to learn all of those forms. See, that's the problem. But the, 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 the most important thing, and this is it, most important thing about studying the original languages, even if you're using uh, modern tools, there's really good modern tools. I use a, a, 
a computer program called Accordance. It's awesome. I really like it. There's also BibleWorks, which I don't know much about, and Logos, which is really, really good. I just don't want it because I've been using Accordance for the past uh, 18 years, and that's what I like, and it's free. So, uh, But the best thing about studying the original languages is it makes you slow down and think through, one, every word, and two, how every word is being used in the sentence. Anything that forces you to slow down and think through what God is trying to say is good. For some of you, if you're like, man, Greek, Hebrew seem impossible, you know what I challenge you to do? Get a Spanish version of the Bible. If you've taken a couple years of Spanish and some of those words make sense, get a Spanish version. Well, why? Well, the Bible wasn't written in Spanish. I know, wasn't written in English. But if you slow down and think, because in English, we, it is so easy for us to just zoom past stuff real fast. But force yourself to slow down. That's why I think the original language is really helpful. Um, and I'll say this, uh, studying the original languages helps more with grammar than it does with vocabulary. We've, I've got some warnings for that. And I said, it's like underwear. It's, nobody has to see that. Good, I'm glad you have that, right? Because again, we're not trying to draw attention to ourselves. We're trying to draw attention to the Lord. Okay, so one more, one more thing. Warnings with the original languages. Um, word studies can can lead can often lead people away from the, from the meaning of the text. Uh, that's why I'm saying the original languages are great more with grammar than they are with vocabulary. Because word studies, word studies are most helpful if you're going to be doing word studies. It's great to study how a particular author is using a particular word. Because here's the deal: if you did a word study on my vocabulary and you compared it with Steve's vocabulary right? We're different people, and we use different words for different things. So why would, you, why would you take a word that I said and say, well, oh, yes, Steve, here's a quote from Steve, right? And I'm going to take Zach's definition for a word for him. That doesn't make sense, right? So a lot of times when you're doing that with the Bible, that's what you're doing. You're taking one author, and one author's writings and another author's writings, and you're saying, well, this person means this here, so it definitely means that this person means it here. Ooh, be careful, Right? But you can look at consistency if a specific author is using a word the same way or if they're switching it up. And then uh, sometimes love means love. Okay, I'm going to use this example. Um, And I'm going to use an example that is, I think, one of the most abused passages of Scripture when looking at the original text, and that's John 21. I'm going to read it. John 21, 15 through 17 says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, uh, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than, more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, where we go, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I've heard this message preached so many times where they say, look, uh, there's something going on here. In the original language, there's two different words for love. And Peter is upset because the first time that Jesus says, do you love me? He says, agape. And Peter says, I phileo you. And the second time, he said, Jesus says, do you agape me? And he says, no, I phileo you. And then the third time, Jesus says, do you phileo me? And he says, see, Jesus changed the word for love. And this, is, this makes Peter so angry. He's so sad because we all know that agape, it means this covenant love of God. And phileo means like a brotherly love. And so Jesus lowered the standard for Peter. Man, that's just not the case. Because here's the deal. We're, we want to rightly divide the word of truth. 
Now, does, does agape, is that, is that originally, did that mean the covenant love of God and was phileo used to mean brotherly love? Yep, that's right. But by the time the New Testament was written, they're pretty much interchangeable. In fact, sometimes phileo would even mean kiss. So we have one time in the Bible where it says like greet each other with a holy kiss, it uses the word phileo, okay? Now, because here's, here's the thing. If we're gonna make a big deal of agape and phileo and say, well, here's the differences between those, we gotta be careful. Okay, like even in John. In John, if, if we're gonna make a point out of John 21 and say, John is making a huge distinction between agape and phileo, then we need to make sure, because here you realize that when we, when we misinterpret the Bible and say, thus does the Lord, we are putting words in God's mouth that he didn't say. Okay, especially for dads and moms out there, do you ever have one of your children misrepresent you to your spouse? Well, dad said, whoa, 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 no, 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 dad did not say that. Dad said, you, you need to talk to your mom. He didn't say it was okay with him. See that? That's not what daddy said. Now, when we are handling the scriptures, we are telling people what God is saying. So be careful. Because if I'm gonna make the point and say, oh, John is trying to say, because he's switching the words love here, that, that John uses those terms consistently. Oh, but look, in John 3.35 it says, the father loves the son, and he uses the word agape. In John 5, he's repeating the exact same thing, and he says, the father loves the son, but he uses the word phileo. Ooh, okay, time out. So, if John is using these words interchangeably in John 3 and John 5, then I'm making a huge statement if I'm saying he's not using them interchangeably in John 21. That's a big deal, all right? Because sometimes synonyms are synonyms. Because if you're gonna make a big deal of, of John switching the words here for agape and phileo, you also need to figure out what to do with this. In, in verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17, notice that he changes what he said. Jesus' response is different, right? The first time, these are, I put the Greek in there just because, you know, that's what happened when I copied and pasted it. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, I could read that for you if you want, but I'm not. I'm just going to read the English because it's easier. Um, okay, so you've got, notice here, you've got your bosque and your poimini right here. All right. What, we've got feed, the first in verse 15, feed in verse 17, but we've got shepherd or tend in verse 16. And over here, we've got lambs and then sheep and then sheep. You, you see that? Do you know... Do you guys know the difference between lambs and sheep? It's, they're synonyms, right? Feed and tend, Jesus is using them as synonyms. Okay, then some of you are like, you, I, you just ripped the, ru the rug out from underneath me. Now I'm, I'm, I'm mad at you, and I don't know what to do. What's he really saying? Well, let's look at the text. Because he didn't say, um, Je Jesus didn't say, I mean, uh, the, the text doesn't say that Peter was grieved because Jesus switched the words for love. It, but it did say he was grieved, and it did throw in the word because, which is really helpful, because it's explanatory, right? What did he say? 
He was grieved because what? He asked him a third time. Okay, so then we need to think, what's significant about Peter getting to affirm his conviction to love Jesus three times? Okay. Right? Because, and what's crazy is there's just like, you've got Jesus and Peter, and there's this like coal fire in between them. There's this picture of when Peter, three chapters before, was at this coal fire, and this little girl was like, you, you know him, and he's like, no, I don't. That's why he's upset. He's upset because Jesus asked him three times, and he's remembering, oh, crap. I mean, that, I mean I'm, we're not, we don't have to stretch that. It says, it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. You know, there's a lot of times that we're, we're trying to find a deeper meaning and we, we overlook just the normal, clear reading of the text. Because here's the deal, there is a meaning to the text. This is really important. There is a meaning to the text. And who determines that? The author. And we happen to have scripture where we have a divine and human author, and they are communicating something, they have an idea in their head, for lack of a better term, we've got God, that's a anthropomorphism. There you go. Uh, we're, we're trying to get one idea from one mind into another mind, right? And the communication has been successful to the degree that the idea in the mind of the author makes it into an idea in the mind of the reader. This is how all communication takes place. So that means that if, as even for those of us who don't stand up and teach and preach from a pulpit or from a stage, but we're in Bible studies, we're in small groups. You know, our first question is not, what does this mean to you? Because we don't determine the meaning of the text. We should say, what does this mean? What is God trying to say? He's communicated to us clearly in a language that we can understand. What is he trying to say? Then we can say, what is that application, right? That's, that's personal. That's in, that's, that, and usually, I don't want to throw us all under the bus. Usually when we say, what does this mean to you? We don't actually mean you're declaring the meaning of the text. What we mean is, what do you need to do about this? But we need to use our, we need to use our words clearly, right? Now, the question comes, uh, can there be more than one meaning? And the, the answer is also yes, but it's a trick question because that's also determined by the author. Right, like uh, I, this happens all the time in the Old Testament and then there's a, there's a term for this where there will be dual fulfillments for the same thing and a lot of, it's called uh, what, prophetic foreshortening. Pretty neat. Then um, this is where, you're like, you see Isaiah 7, 14. Every, day, every year at Christmas, we talk about this, right? Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Emmanuel. Well, okay. Wait, nope. This, the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. There it is. Um, because in, in Isaiah 7, uh, what's, what's the fulfillment of Isaiah 7? Well, there's two, right? Isaiah 8 is the immediate fulfillment, because in Isaiah 8, God sends a child, 
who is, and the, the, the promise is that before this child is yay old, you're gonna be freed from, this, from these kings that are trying to oppress you. So it, it was, was Isaiah 7, looking forward to Isaiah 8, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, our favorite Bible character, was it? Yes, it was. But did it stop there? No, because we know from Matthew 1.23, what's it say? It quotes Isaiah 7.14 talking about Jesus, right? So there is a meaning to the text. We need to find out what the meaning of the text is. When we're looking at the Old Testament, oftentimes there are multiple fulfillments, and we need to not ignore the original fulfillment and look straight to Jesus. That's what Rob's gonna talk about in just a little bit. He's gonna talk about finding Jesus in every text, but if you're gonna find Jesus in every text, you need to follow the road signs, you need, to, you, need to, you need to follow the train of thought that the author has laid out. So our job is this. Our job is to build a bridge. We need, to, we need to understand what did this mean to the original audience, what's the main point, and how do we apply that today, right? And we should be doing so in such a way that we are training the people that we're teaching that they too can understand what God is saying because he is a God who is near to us, who has revealed himself to us through his word. That we have God's word and we have God's word in a language that we can understand that has been preserved for us. So what did it mean then? And then how do we apply that to where we are now? Uh, I'm gonna give you two helpful analogies. I actually taught a breakout on this like three years ago that I think are really helpful. I'm just gonna mention them and then I'll give you a couple resources and then we'll take a break. Uh, two helpful analogies I think are showing your work and teaching to fish, right? Every time, you guys remember, and this, I hated this when I, would, when I was in algebra because my, my teacher would say, you gotta show me your work and I'd be like, I don't care. Did I get the right answer or not? Because I'd be like, well, I don't wanna write this down if I can do it in my head. But a lot of times, you know, you, you skip steps. And that's what my challenge for, is for me when I'm teaching the Bible. You know, because when we talk about um, expositional teaching and preaching, right, we're exposing the meaning of the text. That's what we're doing. And so we wanna, we wanna make the main point of the passage the main point of the sermon. So we make that main point and then we show how we got to that, right? We wanna make sure that we're showing that because it's in that showing that we can give confidence to our people in God's word because they, they don't need us to understand what God is saying through his word. They don't need us for that, right? Now, are, do we have helpful roles? Yeah, we need to be teaching, preaching. We need to be taking, look, this is what God says, so this is what it means for our lives, right? But we're doing this. We're, we're, we need to be showing our work. We don't just, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be in a situation where someone comes up to us and says, man, I really appreciate what you said, but where did you get that from in the Bible? Burn. And we don't want that. And then teaching to fish, right? Because it's as we are, as we are teaching and preaching the Bible, we are teaching them how they can study the Bible. Man, that's what needs to be, and we can cultivate this, this learning to where, oh, I know next week we're going over this chapter. I'm gonna study that, and then I'm gonna come here and listen to someone who's teaching and preaching to me, and we can, we can compare notes. And that's where the light bulbs go off. Oh, not because we've, we've revealed some sort of secret knowledge that they would have never understood without us being there, but that we are helping them understand this is what God says.
right? A couple resources I think are really helpful. I've got two on there. I'm gonna read a couple more for you. One of them is 40 questions on um, interpreting the Bible. This is actually really good and can be given to a lot of students as well. If you have students that wanna know how to say the Bible, 40 questions on interpreting the Bible, it's really good. It answers 40 questions on interpreting the Bible. (laughs) You see that? And then the worst book you can ever read is Exegetical Fallacies. Um, But you should If you care about precision in interpreting scripture, you should read exegetical fallacies and do so with like steel-toed boots on because he'll just slam you because you're like, oh, but I've been doing this all along. Like he'll go, especially with word, like uh, um, fallacies and word studies, you know, because so many times we're like, oh, we know this word. It comes from these two words together. You guys know that there's a lot of times that there's two words combined that have nothing to do with the original two words? Butterfly. <laughs> you know? Because languages change based on use. And so should we real, do we really need to think about, that, does it always matter where the word came from? Nope. It just matters how it's being used. And if you start like, that's one of the problems, what, like Brody was talking about, like the cage stage that people get in. If you're, if you're like that with the original languages, you need to just be tempered just a little bit because you can't just be like, well, this word was originally used for this. And you're like, yeah, that was like 1,800 years before the Bible was written. Think so, sometimes words change in 1,800 years, right? So read exegetical fallacies, it's really good. But you have, to, uh, you have to remember everything that Steve said, that God loves you and you're, you ha- he gives you your worth because um, it's really discouraging. Also, a couple websites, biblicaltraining.org. Biblicaltraining.org is really awesome. Uh, you can take about 40 different uh, seminary classes for free just really helpful, um, biblicaltraining.org. Also, um, if you have studied a little bit of the original languages and you think, oh, I'd like to kind of get back into that, yes. Daily dose, the daily dose of Greek, daily dose of Hebrew, or daily dose of Latin, for those of you studying the Septuagint or the Vulgate, they're really awesome. No, daily dose of Greek's really good. It's like a minute and a half. And that's Rob Plummer, the guy who wrote 40 Questions. He does that. And then there's a Hebrew one and there's a Latin one. And then also uh, Covenant Worldwide Classroom is really good. It's Covenant Seminary where they have just, they, a lot of their um, classes where the professors have either retired or passed away, uh, they will uh, just put their classes up on there. And it's really cool. Like there's some, a lot of them are from the, the mid to late 80s. So it's, it's funny because you'll hear the chalk on the chalkboard um, and sometimes they'll make uh, cultural references like, man, that Jimmy Carter, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so, but those are really good. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, let me challenge you with this. We are, we are primarily teaching the Bible. That's what we're doing. Whether, whether you're the one um, in the front or whether you're one leading a small group, we are teaching the Bible and we're teaching people how they're supposed to treat the Bible. So we need to rightly handle God's word so that we can show them how to rightly handle God's word, right? Let me pray for us when we're done. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. And I thank you for these folks. And I pray that you will teach us through your word. I pray that you will um, reveal yourself to us that your spirit will work through it. And I pray that you will be with us as we attempt to rightly divide your word and as we teach others how to do that as well. We love you and praise your name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. 
We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.